Hello everybody, welcome back. Before we get into the show, we're doing what we always do, where we encourage you to follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter. Obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, share with your friends. All that stuff helps the algorithm, helps other people see us, unless you wanna help keep us a secret, in which case, don't do any of that. You guys are doing a great job of that. We have a Patreon, and most importantly, we have a hotline. So if you have any weird stories, and enjoy the show. Ford Explorers. Hope you're well. We are, as always. Well, I guess not as always, but usually. Anyway. Usually. Most of the time. Yeah. Caleb, how are you? Uh, not so bad. Had a frustrating day this weekend. <laughs> Why did you have a frustrating day this weekend? I told you the story, but I'll tell the audience. I, I went to go get my nails painted, because it's something I like to do. Yep. Uh, and I did what you're supposed to do. You walk in, there's a sign-in sheet, you write your name down, you pick your color out, and you sit down and wait for your turn. They told me, oh, it'll be about 45 minutes. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. It, I made sure I had plenty of time before work to go. Sit there, an hour goes past, and I walk up to the front desk, and I'm like, hey, guys, you said 45 minutes. It's been an hour. How much longer do I have to wait? And they're like, oh, yeah, not a problem. Sorry it's taken so long. What's your name? I told them, and they're like, you're not on this list. <laughs> I said, no, I, I know for a fact I wrote my name down. Um, you're like, listen here, I mean, your hair curled up into a bob, and you're like, I would like to speak to somebody's manager. And I was like, no, I, I definitely wrote my name down, uh, and you told me it'd be 45 minutes. It's just been an hour. Just curious. Uh, and they're like, well, you're not on the list, and they show me the list. And I'm like, no, that's that's me right there with about 15 names after me crossed out. That's a bold gambit, yeah, because you're either they're either exactly right yeah. or gonna really insult you. And uh, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm I'm up there with 15 names after me crossed out, and they're like, oh, well, we we must have just skipped over you. Sorry about that. It'll be about 25 more minutes, and I said, no, it won't. And I put my color <laughs> back and I walked out. And then on the way home, I decided to grab some lunch. Uh, they didn't have what I ordered, so I ordered something else, and then I get home, and it was missing. <laughs> it was not in my bag. And so I ate pizza rolls real upset. <laughs> well, so you are, you're okay. You're, I'm okay. Yeah. Well, I bought one of those Freedom phones, and the police have not been leaving me alone. <laughs> no, uh, I, I didn't buy one of those, and neither should you. Uh, two of the stories I want to talk about before we get into the main story today, uh, both are about cell phones. One is the Freedom Phone. This is more, we're not really going to talk about it, but heaven forbid you think that's a good idea. That is the most honeypot phone. I, there was a story a couple weeks ago about a honeypot phone called Anon that had been given out to uh, crims in Australia and in Europe. And those phones, uh, obviously, were they're designed to snitch on the people, the criminals involved, so all their criminal... Uh, conduct was caught on those phones. Well, that's, I mean, the Freedom Phone is basically that, but for uh, Ukrainian Christmas. Ukrainian Christmas, by the way, is the, I don't know if you guys know this, but Ukrainian Christmas is on January 6th, which means that from now on, I'm exclusively referring to the insurrection as Ukrainian Christmas. Because if you think about it, that's basically what it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, don't buy a Freedom Phone unless you want to be honey potted um, and you want to end up in some 
I guess Guantanamo Bay is getting close, but wherever they're going to put you next, don't get one Guantanamo of those Guantanamo Bay too. Um, but my follow-up story is don't get any fucking phone. <laughs> uh, because if any of you are familiar, if you've seen the film The Dissident, or if you're familiar with the case of Jamal Jashogi. Jish- Shogi? Yeah. His disappearance and subsequent murder. Disappearance is such a like uh, lazy journalist word for it. He was fucking murdered yeah. uh, by the... He was murdered and it was covered up. Yeah, by the Saudis. Not really. You well, know, yeah. Not really. The Saudis just went, try us. Uh, and it was possible because of a malware program known as Pegasus. Pegasus is a phone malware. Um, it's designed for Android and for uh, Apple phones, and it allows you pretty much root access to a device you can record you can uh, pull files you can pull text you can pull absolutely everything and you can obviously you can screen watch at the same time you can observe in real time and that's how jamal was caught because uh somebody he was working with um had had his phone infected with pegasus and then that phone infected jamal's it snitched him out to um, Mohammed bin Salmin, and then he killed him or had him killed. Yeah. Um, none of that is hearsay. None of that is alleged. We allege a lot of things on here. All of that was recorded by security cameras. All of that absolutely fucking. Yeah, happened. that's just proof. That's yeah. just cold hard proof. Yeah, that legitimately really did happen. So, uh, what's terrifying is the Guardian uh, just recently they worked with like sixteen other groups, including Amnesty International and a handful of others to uh, reveal that NSO, the company that makes Pegasus, has uh, been collecting data on uh, dozens of thousands, of about 50,000 people um, from different countries, the largest being Mexico. Um, And while NSO insists up and down that their program is only designed to go after criminals and terrorists, because those are real things, it could not be a more Israeli statement, there's no such thing as a criminal. There's no such thing as a terrorist. Therefore, you cannot be classified as one, so you can't be treated as one. Um, they think that these programs are totally acceptable because there are these threats that have to be stopped. Well, because of that, uh, journalists are being killed. Um, there are at least 200 journalists' um, names, all from, none of them are from Fox News. You know, it's all CNN, it's AP, it's routers, it's people who actually uh, deliver the news. The CNN thing, in all fairness, we're not firm believers in what CNN does, obviously. <laughs> uh, but routers, AP, you know, these are Al Jazeera, these are real media outlets. Yeah. Not, uh, not nearly as commercial as what we have in the U.S. So um, it's a really fucking dangerous program that's being used unchecked. The NSO insists that they don't collect any of the data that their clients obtain, but there's no reason to believe that that's the case. Um, and you have they insist that it's perfectly safe and the government should be using it, but as far as we can tell, the only thing it's been used for so far is to compromise and murder silence journalists. Yes. So that being said... Keep your phone safe. Uh, do what you can. Take all precautions. Try to avoid. I I've used a burner phone my whole life, uh, and I use one because it's safer. Um, if all else fails, you can always just throw your phone away. Do I do anything that requires that sort of level of safety? No, not necessarily. But it doesn't change the fact that one day someone might decide that I do. Yeah. They might decide that what we do with this podcast is too divergent of thought, and that we should be censored. And if that happens, you end up with surveillance in a way that's very dangerous. This is something that could be unleashed to every government like that, and I guarantee you is already being used significantly more than it's being reported. Oh, yeah. And I remember, you know, when smartphones were coming out, not to be too much of a boomer about this, but I remember people jokingly saying, like, I welcome my new Google overlords, and, oh, I don't give a shit. I know this phone's recording everything I do. Well, those chickens are about to fucking come home to roost. 
you might not have cared then, but now when everything you do can be observed, when you can't hide a single fucking thing in your life, you're going to regret the fact that you were as playful and coy about your privacy yeah. as a lot of people have been. So get a VPN, protect your fucking privacy, hide everything you have, no matter what it is from the government. Uh, they don't deserve to know what you're doing. Uh, Caleb, would you like to talk? <laughs> you, I, I know you've got some funny stories too. I just wanted to talk about <laughs> cell phone drama before we got into the show today. Yeah, I have two fun news. We articles. are talking about surveillance today. So we are. It's relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, I have two fun articles. The first one, a undiscovered or previously undiscovered, it's discovered now, beetle species was found in 230 million year old fossilized dinosaur poop. That's sick. That's so sick. researchers discovered a brand new beetle, <laughs> and it was just chilling inside some turds. Yeah, brand new uh, prehistoric <laughs> dung beetle. Uh, so they estimate that it is roughly 252 million years to 201 million years old, um, and the suborder of bugs is called uh, myophaga, which is a small aquatic or semi-aquatic beetle that eat algae. Okay. Um, and they believe you that... You sound like blathers right now. Just so you know. <laughs> uh, ah, fucking bugs. Um, so they believed the way it got into the dinosaur poop was uh, it was eating algae and it was a herbivore, uh, an aquatic herbivore or a semi-aquatic herbivore eating the algae and just kind of slurped them up with it. Okay. And then it got fossilized in the turds when the meteor hit. Nice. Um, but yeah, so I was reading a story. This isn't. I won't bring this up for this. It's a. I could talk about it otherwise. But I read a story that said that uh, there has been a watermark that's been found that showed evidence of a mile high typhoon from when that asteroid hit. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a lot of what a wave, brah. But uh, babe, Cody Coke could surf it for days. He could surf it for about ten minutes before yeah. he fell off the board. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very kind of you. But babe, wake up! New new beetle just dropped. <laughs> And the second news article that I have before we get in the show is there is a serial Florida man who's been going around. <laughs> Dude, this is amazing. <laughs> stealing candles and upon his escape, hitting people with bear spray. So uh, in Doral, Florida, uh, a man escaped a mall store with stolen candles on Saturday by spraying everyone in his way with bear repellent. <laughs> uh, I mean, bear mace is serious business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I accidentally got hit with bear mace once. It was the worst experience of my life. It's because me and my friend were hanging out in his garage and knocked a can of it off of his shelves in his garage, and the can exploded. Oh, God damn. Yeah. I have a... I know these two brothers. <laughs> I... Mike and Pat Reinhardt, and I only laugh because I'm sure other people who might hear this may have run into these guys over the course of their life. They're these two. We were, you know, like hard, hardcore guy. You know, we were in a hardcore band together, that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, Pat was outside of the only strip club in the little town we lived in at the time, eating a bunch of nachos because um, he wasn't allowed to eat inside. And um, some uh, like crust punk kids had gotten in a fight right by. It was like kind of a punk neighborhood. And uh, <laughs> one girl got out a bunch of bear mace and, like, sprayed it at everybody in the conflict to, like, try to break it up. That's, like, a relatively common, like, crusty move yeah. is the bear mace. And I remember distinctly him just being like, oh, he didn't want to move at all. And he was just like, oh, I'm just eating nachos while sort of Inhaling bear mace. <laughs> he really wanted to eat his food and he didn't want to have to move. And he came in later and his face was all red, but he was okay. And I was like, how was that mace? And he was like, that could have been worse. I was like, what? How could it have been fucking worse? Anyway, that's why I have a feeling that the people out in the world, there's a decent chance they've run into the <laughs> Reinhardt brothers because they're 
They're special boys. Speaking of special boys. Yes. Today we're talking about a very special boy. We are. We're talking about the brazen beer baron of the Bronx himself, Dutch Schultz. Also known as Arthur Simon Flagenheimer. AKA, yeah, his born <laughs> his born name, his birth name. <laughs> his birth name. Yeah, no wonder he changed that fucking name. <laughs> Flagenheimer. <laughs> uh, nice to meet you. Uh, name's Arthur Fliegenheimer, and they're like, no, it's not. Isn't that the, that's the Joker's last name. That's how he became that way. He's uh, I love it know when, how I got these scars. I love it when someone's made-up name is more believable than their real name. Yeah, that's Fliegenheimer's the most made-up fucking name. Anyway, so Dutch was one of the most uh, like profound gangsters yes. in New York uh, and the like New York State area, not just New York City, um, during Prohibition. But when you think of gangsters, he was there, you know, he was he did it all, man. And he was there with Lucky Luciano. He was there with Arnold Rothstein. Like he was there in the thick of it with the gangsters that you think of. He was definitely one of them. Uh, and he was one of the, the wealthiest. Uh, and that's sort of what we're talking about today, because we're going to talk about his life. We're going to talk about the man, because you can't without you can't talk about uh, his riches without talking about him, especially with how eccentric he was, but we're going to talk about his treasure, which is if you grew up uh, like uh, like a mini in Long Island as a teen, you probably heard a lot about the treasure of Dutch Schultz being up in the Catskills somewhere. Yes, it's a strong box, not dissimilar from Forest Fens, which of course was discovered um, just recently. That allegedly contains jewels, coins, bearer bonds, all kinds of riches. What is it? It's about 150 million dollars in value now. Yes, yeah, just that's a lot of money, man. That's nothing to shy away at. A estimated between 50 million and 100. Million. Which is wild, but when we get into how he was making his money, you'll understand how it was that he had just that much money lying yeah. around. Because at the time, it would have been about $7 million. Mm -hmm. But $7 million in the 1930s going into a box is incredible. We're oh, talking yeah. about the tail end of, of course, Prohibition, but more importantly, the Great Depression. And this guy was a millionaire. Yes. So that's nothing to scoff at. So why don't you tell a little bit about him? Yeah, so he was born August 6, 1901 to uh, German-Jewish immigrants. So he was a first-generation American. Um, his home life growing up was a bit rocky. In about 1910, his father just kind of vanished. Poof. Um, uh, I would imagine, you know, it's raising a family as an immigrant around the turn of the 20th century in the U.S. Like that's, yeah. yeah, especially from Germany, who... Uh, isn't gonna get their big bad rap yet. That comes in a couple of years. Well, but with World War One, also had a bad rap. And I will say that uh, it happened. There's you know a long line of immigration in my family, and uh, there have been names that have been changed, and that's because like uh, it's it was easier. People forget now, you know ethnicities are we're fortunately working towards like a greater sense of oneness yes. you know but to be irish or to be scandinavian or to be polish or anything like that used to be an ethnicity in and of itself mm -hmm. you know so to be german while you think oh well he was a white immigrant what's the pro he was fucking german he wasn't a white immigrant yeah. that's not how he was looked at yes yeah. unless you were scottish or honestly not irish scottish or english that was it yeah, yeah. so it, it you would have been it would have been harder to get by for sure so his father just up and like abandoned the family in 1910 and his mother was listed as divorced in the 1910 census and then later in 1932 uh she was like yeah my husband died in 1910 like we didn't get divorced he just died but no one knows how he died and no one told arthur how his father died everyone told arthur 
his father left him. Yeah, which makes you think that the father must have died doing something really embarrassing. Yeah. Because, like, he must have... I don't know. That's that feels like a autoerotic asphyxiation kind of thing. It because, does. You know, like how would you? How would it be better if he ran out on the family? Because if he was murdered, they uh, and he killed himself. In like 1910, they found his father like in a nice puffy dress, <laughs> and like they're like, "Hey, man, we found your father." And the mom's like, "No, don't tell." <laughs> Your father left us. <laughs> yeah, it was like way worse back then. Is I think he's wearing your heels. No, no, he didn't. No, he, he left. He us. left. So he never came back ever again. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably true. It's painfully. I have bad news and I have but... bad news. Your father abandoned us, and your mother died. <laughs> like the uh, the mom was very accepting of the of the father. Listen, your father's gone. <laughs> It's now your mother, but also she's dead. <laughs> um, so this traumatized Arthur, and he spent the rest of his life denying the fact that his father abandoned him. He's okay. like, nah, he died. Like, he wouldn't leave us. He then dropped out of the eighth grade to work to support him and his mom, because okay. that's what you had to do. Yeah. My, my great-grandpa dropped out in the eighth grade to work in a coal mine Ooh. to support his family. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. But, I mean, that's yeah, that was the way of life. Yeah. Um, and he worked as a feeder and pressman for the... Clark Loose Leaf Company, Caxton Press, American Express, and then Schultz Trucking uh, between 1916 and 1919. Yeah. So when he was 17 to 20. Um, and then he started working in a nightclub that was owned by a local gangster. <laughs> <laughs> and his name was Gay Tony. And uh, he started robbing craps games that were happening in the nightclub and in the alleyway. And he was like, this is an easy way to make money. People were, like, shooting craps and winning money. And he was like, that's mine now. Working in a nightclub, you, you obviously are open to a lot of temptation in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and the nightclub I worked in is obviously a world different from the <laughs> nightclub that he worked in. But I would imagine the temptations are still there because people are being so, like, that's a bacchanal, right? Like, yeah. they're all being kind of irresponsible with everything. I'm not surprised that the first thing he did was like, okay, well, how can I steal money from here? We had a security guy once... Worked for us. I'm not shitting you. Maybe seven hours and stole a laptop from the DJ booth, and it was. Just like, <laughs> everybody was like, he wasn't there to work. No, he was. He was speed. He running. was there to steal. Yeah, and what's wild is he got away with it. Like they didn't really follow up on it. It was a brand new MacBook, which I'm sure he sold for a couple grand at the time. Like he honestly kind of cashed out. Damn. And we all were just standing there, like, fucking damn, <laughs> damn. That was cavalier. Just first day, mm, yoink. Not even through the first like whole shift I and it was, it was a nightclub so it wasn't like you know you're used to bartending i john taffer likes to yell that giving away drinks is theft it's not really it's not but you expect that sort of theft stealing yeah. cash or something no no stealing a damn laptop stole the dj's laptop <laughs> the, the music like, just abruptly stops <laughs> everyone's like hey and the guy's just like <laughs> sorry guys and just takes it and walks <laughs> i'm taking this and everyone's like all right <laughs> so He's like, oh, man, taking money from other people is really fun. How can I do more of this? <laughs> so he decides to rob an apartment. The thing was, he was good at robbing craps games. <laughs> he was not He was real bad at robbing apartments. <laughs> he immediately got caught. Uh, he's sent to prison on Blackwell's Island, which is now Roosevelt Island. And if you think he was bad at robbing apartments, he was even worse at being a prisoner. <laughs> he was constantly starting fights. He was constantly trying to escape to the point where as he was trying to escape, they caught him and they're like, hey man, we don't want to do this anymore. 
So we're sending you to a work camp, and we're adding What's two months to your Yeah, go dig some holes. Go break some rocks. <laughs> he was out there with Shia LaBeouf digging holes. So he gets put on this uh, work farm in Long Island, and they're like, go break some rocks. We're adding two months to your sentence for being a little shit. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple years. <laughs> so in 1920, he gets released from prison, December 8th of 1920. And he goes back to work for Schultz Trucking. Well, two big things happened in 1920. The Volstead Act and the start of Prohibition. Yep. Well, the hand in hand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For those at home who don't know, the Volstead Act was the worst piece of legislation possibly <laughs> ever signed in this country. And it said, you can't drink no more because that's bad. They were wrong. The Volstead Act starts, Prohibition starts, and the shipping company is like, well, there's only one thing we can do. Let's start bringing beer into the U.S. from Canada. The grand tradition of Prohibition. They then made their way up. They said, let's let's smuggle liquor into New York City from Canada. Well, I'll say there's a lot of misconceptions about Prohibition. I happen to kind of be a professional expert in it, I guess. But what I will say is that the majority of the alcohol that was in the U.S., there's this, like, glamorized idea that there were cocktails and all this stuff, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Cocktails were popular a century before that. What it was was <clears throat> typically like a whorehouse or a gambling hall. Where you, and I don't say that in a non-sex positive way. I'm very sex yeah. positive, but a whorehouse or like a sorry a brothel or like a, game. a love shack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little known place where we can get together. Uh, but that or like a you would go to like a gambling hall or something, and they would have alcohol available, and it was almost always Canadian rye whiskey. Yeah, it was very commonly rum because rum would come in from the Caribbean. Uh, Don the Beachcomber, one of the guys who started Tiki, he he was a bootlegger during Prohibition. That's why he had access to it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so he was he running rye from the north especially beer and rye very yeah. common thing to do rye runners and rum runners right yeah yeah exactly yeah that's how he started making money he was bringing in uh beer and whiskey in from canada and that is when he starts getting to know a lot of well-known criminals and they're like hey dude we fucking hate your name <laughs> <laughs> yeah well fliegenheimer's a that's a rough name yeah they're like arthur fliegenheimer now you're dutch schultz <laughs> you're now dutch schultz and you're dutch schultz because you're from Germany <laughs> or your parents are from Germany and we just don't really understand stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, he was, you know, they were, his family were German and Jews, which is why they went with Schultz. Yes. And Dutch was just a malpropism of Deutsch, which is also uh, what happens with the Amish. People think that they are Dutch, that they're Pennsylvania Dutch. They're mm. not. They're the Pennsylvania Deutsch. They're German. That's why all their traditions are German. They make, they actually make rye whiskey as well. Mm -hmm. That's how, where we got it from. So yeah, they just gave him, they were like, we're done with this. We're going to give you, they basically called him, you know, like Speedy Gonzalez. It's yeah. like the most just <laughs> generic borderline racist <laughs> name you could call it. You're guy. German Jew man. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what they called him. Yeah. And he's like, I guess I'm German Jew man now. That's me so now, guys. From here on out he is Dutch Schultz and we will refer to him as Dutch or yep. Dutch Schultz from Dirty Dutch Schultz. And uh with this he gets in a little bit of a kerfuffle <laughs> with uh, the shipping company. With well, he's Schultz been known trucking. to get, as if you've been paying attention for the past 15 minutes, pretty much every opportunity he has to be confrontational yes. or cause a problem, he does. Yeah, and uh, he also got, like, he's, he's like, like, he's like, he reminds me of Jake Paul. Yeah. I hope one day, I hope when Jake Paul's 34, spoiler alert, he gets gunned down and we go looking for his treasure. Spoiler alert, <laughs> that's gonna happen. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> for a second there, I was like, did you just admit you're going to kill no, Jake Paul and admitted he that 34? he's going to die? <laughs> so uh, there's no real um, written reason why he got in this disagreement, but I'd like to assume that it's like 
So his new name is jo- Dutch Schultz, and he's working for Schultz Trucking. That's like working at Arby's, yeah. and one day going in and being like, hey guys, my name is now Steve Arby's, and they're like, no it's not, we're not going to call you the name of this company, people are going to think you own Arby's, and he's like, I don't see the problem. It reminds me of like professional wrestling naming tropes, where you like kind of name yourself after a thing you might be, or something you do, it's a repo man, it's funny, like, ah, like the truck, Schultz, like the truck that I'm driving. <laughs> Hey guys, no, what I want to think what happened is there was a meeting of a bunch of lower level mobsters and it was like Skinny Legs Maloney <laughs> and fucking Chicken Wing Charles <laughs> and Arthur comes up and he's like, what's my nickname, guys? And they're like, fuck. Um, <laughs> and the truck's behind him and they're like, you're German, right? And he's like, yeah. Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz, <laughs> yeah, that's your name now. And he's like, I like that. I like, it's like the <laughs> Peter Griffin scene in Family Guy. Peter Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets in this argument and he leaves Schultz Trucking. He leaves his own company, apparently. Um, and he goes and works for their Italian competitors, not as a shipping company, but as a smuggling company. So he's That's still a shipping company. Well, yeah. Yeah. How dare you? Um, and he does that. I'm not. I'm going to bring Barry Seal up again, because it's an episode of the Acid Cat Spirit Hour where we always talk about Barry Seal. Yes. He was a smuggler, but he was, he was. A, he was a profound importer. Han and exporter of all was a smuggler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he does this Han until... Solo is a human trafficker, and that doesn't get talked about it enough. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> like, no shit his son became Kylo Ren. That dude used to carry slaves across the galaxy. <laughs> he does rye running until... The rye runs out. Prohibition ends. <laughs> the rye runs dry. Yeah. The rye runs dry. Prohibition But he made a ends. fortune during Prohibition. So much money. Yeah. But as anyone who makes a lot of money, it's never enough money. And I, quickly, I just want to uh, interject this a little bit, because Prohibition isn't the biggest part of the story. Obviously, we're here to talk about his yeah. treasure. However, uh, organized crime, for those who don't know, basically came to be, to be a thing in the U.S. during Prohibition. Prohibition is sort of what caused it to happen because they needed a network of distribution for the alcohol. So they needed to be able to work with one another. And thusly, you had a bunch of these coalitions, one of which he was a part of the commission, as it was known yes. in New York City. It was eight of them. And they were kind of like all the gangsters who called all the shots. Uh, yeah, it, organized crime as a policy, these early like uh, mob guys i think it's easy you look at the gambinos and stuff like that and the modern the whitey bulgers like the modern day examples and they're much more violent and a much more like street crime level and yes. you look back at this other stuff and it's so much more grandiose but it's because it was still pretty lawless yeah so they could build these pretty significant empires so during that time period he did build a very large empire um and he was instrumental in the taking down of george remus as well which led to a lot of redistribution of money and the old overholt distillery so he was a very wealthy guy. Like, he made his nut during Prohibition, for sure. Um, so, Prohibition starts to end, and like we said, anyone that makes a lot of money, it's never enough money, so yeah. they still need to make money. So, he turned his focus to a new way of making money, and that was the Harlem Numbers Racket. Yeah, racketeering. Well, I mean, Rothstein, that was a big part of it. We've brought up Rothstein on the on the show a number mm-hmm. of times and he's a really important historical figure especially in terms of crime uh but we talked about him when we talked about shergar because he was a prolific he fixed the world series in 1919 and he was like a prolific horse race fixer yeah but he was a racketeer and numbers guy mm-hmm. um and his protege one lucky luciano is somebody that dutch schultz became a very close working partner with through the rackets yes so talk to him about the harlem lotteries so uh he met this guy otto abadaba beerman 
Great name. <laughs> the, the nicknames these guys got. Um, That's and Long Johnny and Abba Dabba. They did uh, the pick three lotteries, which requires players to choose three numbers that are derived from the last three digits of the daily bets placed. And what Bierman did was like, he was an accountant and a math whiz. And he was like, the way you do this is you have to bet this exact amount of money at the very end and it'll change it to make the odds super in your favor. Yeah, because the idea was that, you know, like there's a few of those mathematical sort of like um, illusions, right? Yeah. Like you'll sit down and it's like, add six, like pick any number and add two to it. Now subtract four and, you know, it always comes out to 24 or whatever. Yeah. It was an example of that because the way this works is say the total pot ends in $573. Well, you picked, if you pick five, seven, and three, you win the money because yeah. that's how it works. Well, if you control the pot at the very end of betting, you can slide in whatever you need to kind of fix it. You don't even really need to change the odds. You can just count the money and go, yeah. okay, add six bucks. So what he would do is... Um, Abadaba would be like, here's the least amount of money you have to do at the last minute to get the entire pot. And so they did that for months. Like, they were racking in cash. Um, they believed he got, like, a multi-million dollar a month tax-free income. Well, because... Abadaba himself was paid ten grand a month. Yeah, ten grand a week. Uh, ten grand a week. Ten grand a week, which is like a hundred and forty thousand dollars now. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's so not an insignificant amount of money. No, imagine getting a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a week right now. God damn, I don't even think Mr. Beast does that. <sighs> probably not. He probably gives away a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He a doesn't week. give I away know. any money. He just passes along all his friends. Yeah, it's a circular economy. Um, but that wasn't the only way he was making money. So he's got this racketeering business. That is bringing him multi-million dollars a week or a month. Oh, yeah. The dude was rigging the lottery. Yeah. That's significant. I mean, and that's why I sort of preface this a little bit with, like, the scale of the crimes. Yes. And rigging the World Series is such an incredible feat if you think about it now. And maybe proportional bias. But that's once a year. Yeah, it plays into that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's once a year. He was doing this every day. I know. But just, like, the <laughs> scale of crimes they were able to pull off. Now there's people... You know, you hear the libertarian bootstrap idiots complain about regulation because they don't really know what the laws really apply to. And a lot of this stuff just stops this shit from happening. Yeah. It stops your grandparents from getting their money stolen from them. It stops, you know, like, people get duped, man. And if you really think you're that fucking prepared to take on the world, someone will trick you. Yes. Protections are important because this stuff is, it's nuts. That's so much money to fleece off of people. <sighs> a non-state run lottery. He was just running a lottery. Yeah. Just running a local lottery. Yes. It's incredible. Um, wasn't the only way he was making money at the time. No, I mean, this guy had his hand in pretty much everybody's pocket. So he also began extorting New York restaurant owners and yeah, workers. this one's good. By, uh, so he met a guy, Jules, um, I can never pronounce his actual name. It, he went by Julie Martin. His real name is Jules Mojaleski, I believe. Modgaluski. Modgaluski. There yeah. we go. <laughs> um, they created this thing with the help of uh, the Waiters Local 16 and Cafeteria's uh, Workers Local 302. It's also worth pointing out that Julie was like a fucking mountain of a man named oh, Julie. Which huge. I think is amazing. Because yeah. I've, I've definitely, you know, there's like Kim and there's Charlie and they're like definitely these names that uh, gender, obviously we don't believe in gender, you know, whatever. But you see typically <laughs> names in certain places. What Julie's a sick... Jessica. Yeah, like, <laughs> did you imagine if The Rock's name was Rachel? <laughs> uh, he might have better... Uh, 
<laughs> political opinion. Yeah, he might be less of a fucking toxic misogynist transphobe if maybe he was. <laughs> but uh, they all work together to create the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association. You might be asking, what's that? Well, that was a way <laughs> for Schultz to go to restaurant owners and be like, hey man, give me money. Join my association and give me your monthly dues. And they're like, no. He goes, cool. Well, now all your employees are in a union and they're going to constantly ask you for money and go on strikes. Yeah, the, that type of racketeering is really fascinating because, you know, normally you think of, like, protection racketeering, right? Yeah. Like, that's the stuff, that's the Soprano shit so she always hear about, like, uh, we'll break up your business unless you pay us. We have to pay us not to fuck it up. But it's interesting to be so subversive to be like, oh, no, I'm not going to damn it. I, I wouldn't break your windows. Yeah, I'm going to make them all join a union and you're going to have to pay them 300 times what you current pay, currently pay them. And it's like, damn, that's a master stroke. That's that, extra de- That's a person who goes around picking fights because yeah. that's like the most devious way to go after somebody. It's not nice. There's nothing good about that. And it's not even like, it's so uh, calculated. Yeah. You have to think that. That's a plan. Well, it's like instead of stealing someone's car, stealing their keys. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, yeah, I could take your car from you. Or I can make your car still sit in your parking lot, and you really wish you could drive it, but I'm in control of your keys. Oh, God, we're discussing the government. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's repoing. Never yeah. mind. Yeah, that's um, what they do. And then if they still wouldn't join, and he got their workers in a union, he would just stink bomb their restaurants. That's my favorite part. I love that that was his tactic. He wouldn't actually blow anything up, because if he did, obviously, the restaurant owners wouldn't be able to pay him. So he'd stink bomb them. That's so fantastic. That's like letting loose a bunch of rats in the restaurant. <laughs> But he didn't want, you know, like, it's a very clever, because even if you let loose rats, they'd get a bad reputation. Yeah. It's a clever way to to mess with the business without messing with your potential flow of income. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it had two sides, too. So whenever the employer <laughs> would join. cool crimes. <laughs> when the employer would uh, join the association, the association would then arrange a settlement on the strike and be like, hey, guys, your your owner joined our association we're going to create a settlement and it's going to be like, we're going to give you guys, let's say a hundred thousand dollars to split amongst yourselves. And they're like, that's great. We love you. Awesome. And he'd go to the owner and he's like, so they're demanding $200,000 <laughs> and the owner's like, okay, I guess I have to pay it. And so he give, the owners would give them $200,000 and he's like, here's your guys's $100,000. He'd probably turn I'm to so him. glad that we all did this together. He'd probably turn to him and be like, listen, I did my best. But all I could get out of him was $75,000. Yeah. <laughs> and so by doing this, they extracted thousands of dollars from tributes and dues monthly. Dude, tributes is such an insulting thing to yeah. call that. Come pay tribute. Kiss the ring. <laughs> Kiss the my ring. Knee. Kiss my shiny, glowy, in the dark spider ring. <laughs> so you think, okay, so he's making millions of dollars a month from the racketeering business. Yeah. He's extorting thousands of dollars a month from restaurants. Where's the law? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? So he gets hit as many gangsters at the time do the government enacts a new tax plan. Yep. Uh, if you're familiar with, I almost said Al Pacino, <laughs> Al Capone, Scarface, Al Pacino, the two things that brought Al Capone <sighs> down were the new tax laws and, and syphilis. syphilis. <laughs> I'm we glad we were on the same page. Yeah. We did not rehearse that. We just both know about Al Capone. Well, he is my son. Uh, yeah, he, he <laughs> Al Capone's of, your son? <laughs> that's crazy. He died of a syphilitic brain. He used to stand in front of his pool and fish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> syphilis, he had untreated syphilis, and if you do that, that fungus gets in your brain and it just melts it. Like, it eventually breaks you down, you have dementia, and you die. It's a really 
crazy way to go out. Uh, an important thing to point out, though, is that alcohol has always been under the purview of revenueers. Yes. Like, whether they're going after moonshiners or smugglers during, you know, during legal alcohol production times, going after illicit illegal alcohol makers or going after the bootleggers during prohibition or any of that. Those mm. were, that was always revenueers. They even the, I mean, the whiskey rebellion yeah. that helped start this country was on the basis of taxing alcohol. So the idea that alcohol is being made illegally is more commonly the cops will usually get you for tax evasion before they'll get you for anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not going to catch them making the alcohol. It's not really going to matter. So these tax, uh, tax laws get enacted and Schultz gets on the radar. Yeah. So they start investigating his taxes. And while he is also investigating his own taxes, he starts to suspect that Martin was skimming off the books of the shakedown operation and notices there's $70,000 disparity in his books. Whew, that's a lot of money, man. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money back then. We said $10,000 that's was about half a million dollars. That's a half a million dollars yep. gone missing. Yep. So he said, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have a meeting in the Harmony Hotel in New York, March 2nd, 1935. At this meeting, uh, Bo Weinberg, which was uh, the chief enforcer of his entourage, um, and mob lawyer Dixie Davis. So Dixie Davis was a super big known lawyer for most mobsters. What a great name for a mob lawyer. Yeah. You know, I'll give it to mobsters, man. They, they got a, they're great with aesthetic. Oh yeah. Um, but Martin and Schultz started drinking heavenly, uh, he heavenly, <laughs> heavily during this meeting. And Martin was just denying the claims. Schultz was like, Hey man, there's $70,000 missing. And I think you took it. And he's like, no, I didn't take it. Schultz is like, I like that. That's how you think the tenor of that conversation. Yeah, I know. You're like, hey, fuck you, I like sharing man. cocktails. And he's like, hey, that's brand new good. Hey, so I was looking at the books and I noticed that there was like a little bit of money missing. Like seventy thousand dollars. <laughs> it was like, where's my fucking money? Uh, and it's funny because it kept getting more and more heated, and Schultz just gets up and just fucking sucker punches Martin. <laughs> he's like, I know you took this money. To which Martin like. Gets up off the floor, wipes the blood off his face, and he's like, No, I didn't take $70,000. I took $20,000. <laughs> and he's like, I was entitled to it. And what happens next was written down by Dixie Davis. He said, Dutch Schultz was ugly. He had been drinking, and suddenly, he got his gun out. Uh, Schultz wore his pistol under his vest, tucked inside his pants, right against his belly. One jerk at his vest, and he had it in his hand. All in the same quick motion, he swung it up, stuck it in Jules Martin's mouth, and pulled the trigger. It was as simple and undramatic as that. Just one quick motion of the hand. Dutch Schultz did that murder just as casually as if he was picking his teeth. God damn. That's heartless. Just, that's, <laughs> you took $70,000 from me. I took $20,000. <laughs> yeah, damn, man. Damn. Um, Martin then drops to the floor and yeah. Schultz turned. Yeah. He got shot in the fucking mouth. <laughs> yeah. He, he fell down. He it made him all weak in the knees. Uh, Schultz turns to Davis and he's like, dude, I'm so sorry for killing someone in front of you. I hate to put you through that. And Davis was like, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, sorry. And so Schultz packs up the body, uh, with Bo, uh, and they just leave later. Davis is reading the newspaper and sees the article on Martin's murder. And it said, The body was found in a snowbank with a dozen stab wounds. Whew! And that's what police believe were, like, the murder things. 
The, so the, he stabbed him a dozen times after he shot him? Yes. So Davis goes to Schultz and he goes, Hey man, so you know how I saw you shoot that guy in the mouth? Why does the newspaper say he was stabbed a dozen times? Schultz looks at him dead in the eyes and monotonely goes, Oh, I cut his heart out. Oh yeah, duh, silly fucking me <laughs> for asking. God damn. And he's like... Uh huh. Okay. It was worth about twenty grand. No, see, he took the twenty grand. He needed to make up the fifty thousand dollars that went missing. He got the twenty grand back and his heart. He sold it for fifty thousand (laughs) dollars. He was like, "This was really hard to get out." He's like this tough, cold gangster, but there's twelve stabs because he's like, "He doesn't fucking know where the (laughs) is." It here. Is it here? Is it here? (laughs) He went on to man. I wish you were still alive. You'd be bleeding to help me know where it's at. So, as I previously stated, the U.S. put in... But if we're laughing at this, and then, like, two days from now, we're both dead. From carbon monoxide poisoning. Like, that, it's a funny idea for a movie. It's like a short of two dudes that are doing, like, really wacky shit, and then they just die because it was a gas leak. <sighs> These are two crazy roommates. No, they're two men slowly dying. Our apartment smells like rotten eggs. <laughs> uh so, as I stated earlier, the U.S. puts in these new tax laws, and that put Schultz on the U.S.'s radar. Yep. Specifically, U.S. Attorney Thomas Dewey. Who would go on to be governor of New York. He would. Yeah. But at this time, he was the U.S. Attorney, and he was like, I'm going to get that guy. Yeah. He hasn't paid his federal taxes, and I'm going to take him down. Well, and Schultz's wealth wasn't a secret. It wasn't a secret, and his doings weren't a secret. Yeah. But like we said with Al Pacino, Duncacino, <laughs> Al Capone... That's how the U.S. attorneys would typically take down mobsters. Oh, yeah. Was They're di- like, we have zero proof of your wrongdoings except for your money, and you're not paying taxes on that money. Yeah. So we're going to take that from you, and that's how we're going to put you in jail. Yeah, well, because most of these mobsters employ enough people that, you know, they're never going to be directly culpable for anything that happens. Yeah, you Dewey Davis. <laughs> they can't, you can't prove that I did that. Or Dixie to... Davis. My yeah, bad. Thomas Dewey and Dixie Davis, yeah. Schultz was then indicted Better in Dix. New York in January of 1933 and became a fugitive. Um, after a while, he was chased down. What is the difference in his lifestyle, though? I know. Going from being, you know, it's like... Labels. Yeah, mm-hmm. you were a... F- now you're just a formal. You're a criminal, criminal, now you're a fugitive. Yeah. Uh, it's depending on how comfortable you are, I guess. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, if a pizza at Little Caesars is sitting in that little hot box, it's a criminal. <laughs> but if I call ahead and say I'm coming to get that pizza, now it's a fugitive. <laughs> <laughs> So Thanks Schultz putting that into hot and ready terms for everyone. Schultz then uh, surrendered himself, Albany, New York, in 1934, and it was all part of his plan to have his trial moved from New York City to upstate because he knew New York City was kind of relentless for tax evasion trials. So he was like, if I get it moved to upstate New York, where a lot of the old money is, they're a little more lenient because I'll be able to buy my way out. I'll be yeah. able to push my way out. Exactly. Yeah, witness tampering and stuff. Um. So his first tax evasion trial in Syracuse, New York, ended in a hung jury, uh, which means he gave all the jurors really big penises. <laughs> uh, no, he bribed That's all the jurors. Jury. So he paid off all the jurors. Yeah. He was like, hey, guys, don't put me in jail. And they're like, why? And he goes money and they said yeah that's fine yeah for those at home who don't know a hung jury is usually caused when there's some sort of conflict of interest that involves the jury that no longer they're no longer trustable yes yep. um so then it went to retrial in malone new york uh because you can't have it in the same place because you don't want the whole reason like hey have you seen this case on the news yes i have cool you can't be a juror 
You can't have it in the same place. I agree with all that. I was just thinking about how the post office there probably says Post Malone on the outside of it. Oh, that's sick. Yeah. So the case is going to its second trial, and he's like, I don't think these people are going to take bribes, but what I can do is just make the city like me a whole lot. Yeah. yeah. I want to I wanna look like a country squire and a good citizen. So he donated money to local businesses, he gave toys to sick children, and he did a bunch of charitable deeds for the, con- er, for the city. Yeah, kissing babies, shaking hands. And at this time, so the past one was in November. This is in December. So it's Christmas time in upstate New York. And this guy is like, here's some presents. Here's some money. Can I do anything nice for you? And so in 1935, the summer of 1935, the strategy worked. He was uh, acquitted for tax evasion. They're like, no, he's a good guy. Yeah, dude. And LaGuardia was so... The guy who the airport's named after, Fiario LaGuardia, the mayor at the time, was so mad that he banished him. If you guys listened last week, hopefully you did, to the uh, story about the sinking of the Santa Maria. Yes. We learned that Columbus had to die at sea. He was actually banished from Spain. He yes. was never allowed back. Uh, very similar case. Except it's New Jersey, so it's way worse. Uh, but he was banished across the river. LaGuardia was like, that's it. You get the fuck out of my city forever. Yeah, if, and he was like, I will. He said, I'm going to go to Newark. <laughs> he said, it's on site. If yeah. we see you you're in New York, you're arrested. Imagine being trespassed from a whole city. And so he said, all right, well, I'm just going to set up shot in, uh, in Newark, yep. New Jersey. And so... He was. People are always like, "Why is Newark the way that it is?" It's that's why, because it's like, um, it's, it's a, a refugee camp for the people who were exiled from New York City. <laughs> it's like you're not get the fuck out of here. <laughs> we're already on an island, so we can't put you on another island. But it's northern New Jersey <laughs> is basically from the like Atlantic City up is basically nothing but exiled former New York, and the same goes for like southeastern Pennsylvania too. Yeah, uh, and this brings us to. The coolest part of the story, so when he was indicted for his income tax evasion, he immediately took steps to protect his money. Yeah, so as the law is like coming down on him, he's not a naive guy. Mm-hmm. And we should make it abundantly clear, this guy's 34 years old. Yes. Like, he's not old, but he's been doing this for as long as he hasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. He started when he was 16 years old, he's been doing it the whole time. He's very aware of the game, he knows how it works, he's also making a lot of the rules, so as... As he sees the end possibly coming, he's like, "Well, if they are going to arrest me for real deal, I need to hide all my shit." Yeah, I'm gonna. My uh, my father could tell the story better than I do, but when I was or when he was a younger man, he worked with a prominent. This is statute of limitations is way up on this, so he worked for a prominent drug dealer in Montana when he was a young man, and uh, that drug dealer ended up getting arrested and sent away, and he hid a lot of his money in the caves and stuff out there, and because Montana is so. Uh, old, the caves, you know, can be very small and then open up into these enormous limestone caves. Mm-hmm. And he got his sentence commuted by giving some more of the money back. Um, and he drew a map for the police who were locals too, and they couldn't find it. He, they had to take him out of jail and take him out there so he could be like, it's right there, you idiots. And he gave him like another $100,000 or whatever. But when he got out, nobody's seen him since because everybody knows he just picked up the millions he had hidden and he bounced. Yeah. And I appreciate that that's what Dutch was going to do too. Because, you know, that's undoubtedly planned this guy liked to escape so i can only imagine his plan was okay the heat's coming down on me hard if i actually get locked up i'm gonna make good with the commission and then i'm just gonna disappear yeah yeah and he said i'm gonna need a nest egg to fall back on yeah because if i go to prison they're gonna seize all my assets and i'm gonna have no money when i get out so if i hide my money i'll have something when i get out yep so what he did is he had his top lieutenants clean out his safety deposit boxes and his bank accounts they got 
everything they could from the safety deposit boxes and all the money out of the bank accounts and they brought it to him and in his in a separate hideaway they had in connecticut so this wasn't the one in new jersey this is the one in connecticut dutch uh lulu rosencrantz and marty compier i believe is the way you're supposed to pronounce that so they packed everything up in the steel plated strong box and dutch and lulu traveled to uh fonica new york phoenicia phoenicia yeah yeah i get why yeah. I said, but yeah phoenicia like the city in babylon okay gotcha yeah um and they buried everything near the trunk of a tree and they carved an x into it so they bury this they bury it next to a stump carve an x in the stump and he said hey lulu contrived lulu never tell anyone about this lulu said i swear man i'm never gonna tell anyone about this so they go back and lulu is like hey compier <laughs> you're well, never he, gonna believe where we had this treasure he's gonna be pretty bored right uh so he was like guess what man this dude's going to jail this is where we buried the treasure here's a map which we will now put up yes yeah we'll put it up so you guys can see it it's it's definitely a it's a primitive map it is yeah it uh, looks very so much phallic. like yeah exactly it, like, that what is you the tip of a penis yeah we are it'll be that direction so if you want to look over at the big penis hi big penis, no, penis. yeah it is the most uh, penis looking map i have ever seen so he's like by the way which is a funny it's very funny if he was like i like to think he was like i'm gonna tell him where it is psych <laughs> he just drew a dick <laughs> that's like uh <laughs> it's right there <laughs> it's right in the middle so he's like here's this map we're gonna get this treasure um because this guy's going to jail but you can't tell anyone about this. You yeah, know, the same thing quiet. Schultz said to Lulu. Yeah. And Lulu said it to Marty. I think it would have paid for Lulu to have been in the room the day uh, Schultz shot that guy in the mouth. Yeah. It probably would have behooved him to be in there to be <laughs> like, you know what? He probably means it. I probably shouldn't say a fucking word. And so Lulu tells Marty, he's like, hey, Marty, don't tell anyone about this. And Marty says, yeah, cool. Definitely. Thanks for this map. Hey guys, guess what? He <laughs> went to a couple of I his friends. Got, yeah. yeah, he told several people about the treasure. Um, so, switching back to the tax case, things are mounting up against Schultz, and Schultz is like, um, I have to kind of come clean to the commission and make good ties with the commission. Just like you said, hey, uh, when I get out of prison, I'm going to make right with the commission, and I'm going to disappear. So he started doing that. As things got closer and closer to him feeling like he was going to go to prison. So he was like, hey guys, um, can you set up the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund? We're going to filter my racketeering money through here. You guys can have a cut. It's so fucking funny to use his real name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have some good money. Um, it's going to be clean. You guys can have some. Uh, the tactic pissed off the racketeers, though. Oh, okay. They're like, that... You mean the commission's now going to get a cut of what we're doing? Yeah. And you're going to get an even bigger cut of what we're doing, and it's going to be filtered through your name in case, like, to pay for your trial? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's fucked up. It is fucked up. Um, and Schultz the said... The hubris on this guy. Schultz said, uh, fuck you. <laughs> I'll shoot you in the mouth. <laughs> he wasn't and wrong. They're like, that Martin guy. Oh, you can't. He's got <laughs> no heart. Yeah, and they're like... All right, man. Yeah, does Lulu not know about the time he cut that guy's fucking... Like, he shot him in the mouth, and then he cut his heart out. Are you sure yeah. this is the dude whose treasure you want to talk about? 
Yeah, it's uh, strange. It reminds me, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but George Remus didn't do this. And we're going to talk about it here in a second, about how a marriage played into this case. But uh, Remus was married, and his wife fucking hated him. And when he went to prison, she just took all of it. And when he came back, he was completely broke. He It was not dissimilar at all from yeah. Dutch Schultz in terms of his empire. And it was all gone, and he died absolutely penniless, and it's because he was a piece of shit to his wife. Yeah. yeah. And then he got arrested. So, I understand while it was a very ballsy move, I understand why he, why Arthur was trying to set up all of this for his future, because he knew everybody was going to turn on him. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And this caused some serious, like, damage to the re relationship between his gang and their associates. Yeah, of course. Um, because money bad. starts drying up. Yeah. And they're like, hey man, we were making tons of money, where's that money now? They're like, well, it's kind of being filtered somewhere else. So, uh, Bo Weinberg previously stated, the guy that watched Schultz shoot a man in the mouth yep. was like, hey guys, um, I'm kind of concerned about how much money's like leaving this. So We're getting ripped off. Yes. So he goes to a New Jersey mob boss, Longy Zwillman. Dude, Longy is the best. Longy Zwillman. <laughs> this is when we get into the great names. <laughs> yeah. Who is like, yeah, I know who you should talk to. You should talk to Charlie Lucky Luciano. Yep. He goes and meets with him, and Weinberg is like, hey, man, I want Schultz to go to prison. I want the money that I was making to come back to me, and I want control of Schultz's gang. And Luciano is like, I'm actually planning on breaking up the rackets and breaking up the territory once Schultz goes to prison. He's like, I know Schultz is going to go to prison. I want to break up his gang, I want to break up his territory, and I'm going to give that to all my friends. This caused another, like, big issue? Well, yeah, of course it fucking did. The guy, yeah. this is basically the second-in-command, who's like, hey, listen, yeah. my boss is going away, I want the territory. And Luciano's like, about that, I'm not going to give it to you guys, you guys are basically cut off now, because yes. Head of the Snake's gone, and we're going to keep what you've built, and I'm going to give it to my guys. No shit he was mad about that. Yes. And that's where things get even more complicated because we start going into the second trial. Yep. And they're all pretty sure that he's going to get a guilty verdict. So they just go ahead with the plan. Luciano is and his allies are like, we're going to take over his gang. We're going to split it up. We're going to split the territory. And we're not going to pay cuts or support Weinberg at any point. But Schultz gets acquitted, as we know. <laughs> so he comes back and he's like... He was a charmer, man. Huh? What do you mean all my stuff's gone and my gang's broken up? So he sets a meeting with Luciano through the commission and he sits down and he even converts to Roman Catholicism to kind of cozy up to Luciano. So they sit down with the commission and with Luciano and he's like, hey man, um, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you took over my territory, you took over my gang and you split it all up? Worst substitute teacher ever. What the fuck? And Luciano was like, oh, no, 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 you have it You have it all misunderstood. We were looking after your shop while you were gone. Everything's fine. We're gonna, everything went smoothly. That's uh, why it's closed. You have full control of your rackets again uh, once the heat dies down. You know, you're... You're under investigation. Once the heat dies down, we'll give everything back to you. We're making sure everything's running smoothly. Which is a clever, that's a clever cover for like, where are all my operations? Well, you know, everybody's had to go to ground. We got to kind of be quiet right now. You got a lot of heat on you. 
Yes. We were really hoping you were going to jail. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> That's got to be, we, I think once every podcast, we obviously like stories where at some point somebody goes, ah, oh, God damn it. And this is definitely the ah, oh, God damn it moment of this podcast. Because you know, Luciano was like, all right, today's the day, boys. He's probably dressed all nice. Yeah. He probably did a bunch of nice stuff. They're probably eating. He got a text message in the middle of dinner and he was like, oh, he was like, all right, I guess I have to accept this. Yeah. Like, the heat is on me. Dewey is constantly on my tail. Dewey is now a special prosecutor appointed by LaGuardia to take down. Like, LaGuardia's like, I want it on site, and I want you in charge of it. And Dewey's like, okay, it's my job to find Schultz and arrest his ass. Uh, and the rest of them, too. Not yeah. just his ass. But <laughs> a month after his acquittal, uh, Bo Weinberg walks out of a midtown Manhattan nightclub and is never seen again. Damn. So, Bo Weinberg just disappears. Uh, prepare and yourself. And that's his chief lieutenant. So, that's his right-hand man who was trying to take over his territory because he thought his boss was going to get arrested. Yeah, but then his boss Went didn't... to Luciano, was like, hey, I want his territory. And he's I'm like, not... no. And then disappears? Uh, he wasn't heard from again. I don't think he disappeared. I think everybody knows where that motherfucker is. Oh, yeah, went. he's dead. Yeah. D d you remember that thing I said about how Dutch shot a guy in the mouth and then stabbed him to take his heart out? Yes. You would... Um, Again, it would have really paid to to acknowledge that, I feel like. He maybe would have survived that interaction or that night at the club. So, Schultz's right-hand man is gone, and his whole gang and territory is gone. Well, yeah, but he, at this point, he's just cutting loose dead weight. He know? is. Like, he's on the run. Like, he, he is. He knows that his days are fucking numbered. Again, this guy knows how these things work. Oh, definitely. He knows what Luciano's doing. He also... It, we haven't really talked too much about Charlie Luciano because that's not what this podcast is about. But he was very uh, prolific in sort of sweeping the legs under his uh, peers. The people yes. he'd work with, he'd work with them, and then he'd sort of take over. And that was what he was known for doing. That's how we got Las Vegas. It's all, you know, along. That's a totally different story. But it was very much in his character. He knew what... Dutch knew what was coming. He knew that he needed to get the fuck out of town. Yeah. So I think he was just trying to cut all ties that he might have had. And, you know... Weinberg was one of them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, Schultz then goes to the commission, and he's like, hey, you guys said you won't give me my stuff back until Dewey stops actively chasing me. Why don't we just kill Dewey? And Luciano's like, dude, that's a terrible idea. We can't kill the U.S. attorney. We can't. They're like, Dewey's assassination would cause a massive law enforcement crackdown and it would make all of us crumble. Like, it would take us all down. And so he leaves and the commission does, a, like, a unanimous vote. No, we're not fucking doing that. That's a dumb plan. Schultz is like, fine, I'm gonna kill him myself. And storms out of the meeting. Yeah, his, I mean, his temper, his temper got the best of him once again. There have been several examples over the course of this uh, podcast, the story um, that have shown that Dutch was impulsive uh, to a level that got him in trouble all of the time. He yes. picked fights. He constantly tried to get out of prison. Uh, when he shot, punched, then shot, then ripped out Martin's heart. Like, he was a very impulsive guy, and he clearly had a very short temper. And you saw it quite a bit, but you didn't see it uh, anywhere near the hubris it took to tell the other seven most powerful gangsters in New York, nah, fuck you guys, I'm going after him, I think he should die, I don't care what you think. How on earth do you think when you leave that room, the decision isn't, well, I guess he probably knew. He probably knew when he was out of there that he was like, listen, I'm probably fucking toast anyway, oh, yeah. I'm going to kill this dude, I'm getting the fuck out of here, you guys are going to kill me no matter what, I'm out of here. So They probably should have killed him while he was in that room. Oh, they should have. Yeah. But they didn't take him seriously at first. 
until they found out uh, another operative came to... How could they not? That's such a yeah. stupid... Why wouldn't you take him serious? Who knows? Yeah, he has made it abundantly clear that he doesn't give a fuck. He's impulsive. He's dangerous. He's violent. Yeah. he's He obviously thinks he's above every single condition of the law. And he kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but one of Luciano's guys comes to him and was like, Hey, uh, Dutch just asked me to stake out Dewey's apartment. Um, and Luciano's like... Okay, thanks. Goes to the commissioner and is like, Dutch is asking my guys to stake out Dewey's apartment. I think he's seriously going to try to kill him himself. The commission goes, we got to kill the Dutchman. Yep. Like, we got to. He's, he's just he's going he's yeah, to cause trouble. He's gone too feral. So they sent the bug and Mindy. <laughs> Mindy and the bug. To, I love that it's Mindy and the bug and that they were two assassins from Murder, Inc. And while yes. Murder, Inc. is nothing new to me, obviously I'm familiar with the name. God damn. Ja Rule, man. What a record label. <laughs> yeah, that's what a funny Mindy and the bug. So Mindy and the bug show up to this restaurant. Yeah, October 23rd, 1935. Ready to pump everybody full of lead. Mindy and the bug show up to the Palace Chop House in New Jersey. Uh, and sitting at a table are Otto Bierman. Or Abadaba, yeah. as we stated earlier. Our good man, Abadaba. Uh, who is Dutch's accountant. Uh, Abe Lando, uh, who is his new chief lieutenant ever since Bo went missing. Yeah. <laughs> this is my new guy, Landau. And it's like uh, the final act of Red Dead Redemption, yeah. when the two guys were just like, first name was just like, that's Jake. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's Abe. Um, and Lulu. Like, you're clearly a red shirt. You're toast. You're not making it through the next two hours. His personal bodyguard, as we know and love, yep. uh, Loose Lips Lulu. Yep. <laughs> Lulu loves to talk. Are sitting there, and Dutch goes up and goes to the bathroom. Well, when Dutch goes up and goes to the bathroom, uh, Mindy and the Bug enter the restaurant through the back room, see them all sitting there, and just open fire. Yep. So, uh, Abba Dabba gets shot, and immediately just collapses to the ground. Good old Abe, the chief lieutenant, gets shot in the carotid artery. In the cartoid. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, as a bullet rips past his neck, opens up his neck, and he's like, oh, fuck. And he, like, gets down. Lulu gets shot multiple times, point blank. And they both get back up. Yeah. So Abe and Lulu get back up. And Abe chased him down the street, didn't he? Abe chases the bug out of the restaurant, <laughs> shooting him the whole way, misses every shot, well, and then just fucking collapses into a trash that's can. That's kind of a needless detail to include. This guy's been shot through and through, and he got shot in the throat, and he chased him anyway. You know, he didn't make a single one of those shots, though. That's pretty he pathetic. Did. <laughs> but uh, he collapses into a what, trash can. he shot can. in the throat or something? And then Schultz wanders out of the bathroom, holding his side, and he's like... Hey guys, I've been shot. Um, can someone call me an ambulance? And at this point, Lulu, who has been shot multiple times point blank, is standing there, goes over to the bartender who is cowering behind the bar, and he's like, Hey man, can I bother you? Um, I need some money to call an ambulance, and also... Can I have some brandy, please? <laughs> well, they offered him brandy for the pain, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't have any. Yeah, they had nothing else for him. So he shoots some brandy. He goes up to the payphone, puts the change in there, calls him like, hey, man, uh, we've been shot. Um, can I get an ambulance, please? Man, imagine calling from a, 
a public phone to tell the police that you need a... And as a mobster, too. Like, hey, this is Lulu. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, the big guy. Yeah. Yeah, Dutch's guy. Yeah. So, you know what we do for a living. Well, we kind of hit the sour end of it, and if you could come pick us up from this restaurant and not arrest us, it would be really nice. So, the first ambulance gets there, and they assess the situation, and they're like... Lulu and Abe are in the most critical condition. He's been shot multiple times point blank, and he got shot in the fucking neck. Yeah. And is currently lying in a trash can. But they were all alive still. They're all still alive. Yeah. So the first ambulance takes uh, Abe and Lulu. This podcast, obviously, we talk a lot about people who kind of, like, they take a while to die. Mm -hmm. It turns out mysteries often happen when a person takes a while to die. And uh, it's fascinating to me sometimes, like, how long a person can last. Like... We bring him up all the time, but Meriwether Lewis was, like, brutalized. He was shot and stabbed, and he made it almost two days. He was shot in the head and in the stomach and yeah. stabbed in the chest, and he was like, I guess I'm just going to hang out. Yeah, like, <laughs> this, these guys are shot to hell, and they're like, okay, well, give me a beer, and also, I'm going to need a taxi! I mean, I'm going to need an ambulance. <laughs> Where's that mace candle guy? I need his taxi. So, uh, the first ambulance takes Abe and Lulu... And they're like, you're in critical condition. We got to take you to the hospital immediately. The second ambulance shows up and they're like, all right, Dutch and Abadaba, you guys are in less critical condition, but still critical condition. We're taking you to the hospital. Oh, yeah. Dutch had a bullet in his stomach. Yeah. And Beerman was completely unconscious. Like he got shot. I I don't think he was real. He wasn't cut from the same gym as the rest of the guys. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he got winged in the arm and passed the fuck out. It makes me think of Hitman, how inexplicably the lawyer in every Hitman level is always like a dorky bald guy with suspenders no matter what. And all the fucking security guys are always like big ass mercenaries. It's like, you guys have some stuff you got to work out with lawyers. So they get to the hospital. Beerman's unconscious and Schultz is drifting in and out of... Uh, like lucidness. Yeah, his lucidity. And I'm going to get into that in just a minute because uh, it involves, well, Burroughs is involved in this. And there's some really cool stuff. There was a police stenographer there uh, who was in charge of writing down everything he had to say. Yes. So it should be included in saying that it's not that the, the cops knew who these guys were. And while those ambulances were set out because allegedly they were there for severity everybody who was involved was gonna die yeah that second one was so that they could get both abadaba and schultz together and they'd and be get able, information yep, out. and they could talk to him before they died so uh the medics didn't have any pain relievers so that's when they gave schultz brandy to relieve his suffering and schultz turns to an intern in the ambulance and it's like hey man i'm pretty sure i'm gonna fucking die uh Here's three grand. What I will say about this is while this sounds like a straight up bribe, which it it could have been ostensibly is, there was a time and even now you might notice when you're driving around your town, especially if you live in a city where there are rural suburbs, mm. you'll notice that there are a lot of different ambulances and a lot of different ambulance companies. Yes. And that's because they're independent, just like firehouses are. That's why they're called fire companies. There used to be bidding wars. As a matter of fact, if we go to New York and we go back, you know, a hundred years before this, New York was in the midst of gang infighting. And one of those gangs were the fire departments mm-hmm. and they would physically fight each other at fires for the fires because the city would pay them to put them out the same is true about ambulance companies so it while it seems dirty as shit it makes sense there's probably an advantage he could have gotten by giving this guy this money to be like make sure i get taken care of yeah yeah don't give me the regular service you know what to do take care of but he was like it was also the 1930s so like leeches what do you mean (laughs) he was like i think i'm gonna die and i really don't need money where i'm going so have this money uh they get to the hospital schultz gets taken into surgery 
to try to fix him. Uh, and everyone is pretty sure he's going to make it. So this intern is like, I'm going to go give this money back. <laughs> it's just like, I don't he think, doesn't come for it. I don't think this guy's going to die, and I don't want him coming back to my house this for this $3,000. A lot of money. So as Schultz is passed out in his hospital bed, the intern comes into his room and just sets the money on him and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. So the police start, uh, once everyone is stable, uh, the police start invest er, interrogating everyone. Uh, Abe and Lulu will not talk to police. And Dutch is finally like, you guys can talk to the police. It's fine. So they start giving them minimal information. They're like, these are the guys that shot us. Yeah. I don't know why they shot us. I don't know how they know we were there. Just bare bone shit. Um, at that point, the night has fallen. It is now 2 a.m. And Abadaba dies. He, yep. was, he the was the least first... physically fit yeah. of the four men and the oldest. And he's the first one to die of his injuries. Um, at 6 a.m., Abe dies. He is just exacerbated from his injuries. He just can't keep up. He passes away. Lulu's in surgery. And they open him up. He is missing almost all of his blood. I love the way you said that. <laughs> Guys, his blood's missing. But yeah, they Lulu was... You're right. The description of Rosencrantz is hilarious. Because it's like... Um, you're alive, but we don't know how, and you're yeah. so beyond the level of how we could think to save you that we can't. You should have been dead a while ago. Um, that's why we don't have a solution for you. We're very sorry. Yeah, they're like, which of course back then, now we think about it, he probably would have been fine. Oh yeah, like they said with the ballistic trauma, like just how the bullets tore through him and how much blood he was missing. They're like, we're not even gonna perform surgery on you. There's no point. You're gonna die, and he does. 29 hours later. It's incredible. So almost two days, well, a little over a day later. Yeah. Just, they're like, we can't do anything. You got no blood in you. You're tore up from these bullets. We're, we can't save you. And he's like, thanks for trying. And then just hangs out. That's nuts, man. And to <laughs> have to wait almost, you know, 30 hours just to die. Just bleed, you know, slowly not having function. Like, your body's got to be in incredible pain. Oh, yeah. There's no pain relievers. For, yeah, that would... Hopefully they gave him some morphine or something. So, and then the last alive so is Dutch himself. Dutch. And this is what I want to talk about. So, uh, I brought up Burroughs earlier. And that's because, uh, for those of you who don't know, William Burroughs, counterculture icon, writer, um, sort of a founder of the Beat Generation... Um, he wrote in 1969, as Dutch was dying, he had F.J. Lang, who was a NYPD stenographer, writing down everything he was saying in the hopes that they would give up. He was be give up some information because while they are interrogating the other guys, they were giving information in a significantly more coherent fashion. Schultz was just sweating and dying. And oh, yeah. he was just saying words. He wasn't really saying uh, anything terribly coherent. And... Uh, we have that transcription and we're, we'll run it at the very end of the podcast over the credits so you can see how wacky it is. But Burroughs wrote a never filmed screenplay, including camera movements and everything, uh, set to the 2,000 words that he set. Um, and it's incredible. And if this video gets enough likes, I think Caleb and I will probably try to recreate it. I think we definitely want to. Yeah, because it's, it's absolutely incredible. But he was giving up a lot of things, and this is where a lot of the treasure mystery clues come from. So when we talk about his treasure, we're talking about that strong box that was probably buried somewhere in Phoenicia. Now, 
the reason we think it was in Phoenicia is because as he was dying, one of the things that he said was, Lulu, we got to drive back to Phoenicia. We got to get the bonds out and cash them. Which is what made people, that's sort of what drives the main thinker that there's a bunch of bonds in this strong box in yes. Phoenicia. Now, he said a few other things, uh, including don't let the devil get too close. And there's also been some transcriptions that are inaccurate that aren't, there's been some, like every other quote on the internet, there have been some parts of this that have been attributed to him that I dare say he didn't say because yeah. it's not in the original tr uh, transcription. But uh, he... <sighs> didn't say anything that I think you can see from this. He was asked who shot him, and he said the boss himself. He didn't really... To be perfectly honest, a lot of the, the questions and answers feel like the questions and answers from the uh, Temple OS episode when Terry was Terry Davis was asking God questions about... And God was just pumping out random stuff yeah, back. Elephant 2. Yeah, it really kind of feels that way. You know, it feels... It, it's very, very delirious, and he was just sort of saying whatever. But there aren't a lot of clues in there as to where the treasure is, because that's not what he was doing. He wasn't giving anything up. No. However, uh, some of the things he said while he was dying did people lead people to believe that it is definitely in Phoenicia. Now, according to the map, it would be as well, but the place that it would be now no longer exists. Um, there's a tunnel that connects to a hotel that he used up there uh, that a lot of people allege that there's probably um, a connection that being said, the only thing that's ever been found are two gold coins yes. from 1903. And those gold coins, while not proven to have been a part of his collection, do match the description of what would have been in the box. So if it is anywhere, it is probably in Phoenicia. Now, the question that I have, Caleb, is do you think it is anywhere? I do, uh, because after Dutch and Lulu are murdered, there's only one other person that, for a fact, knows where that treasure is. And that's uh, Marty Crompier. Lulu told him and made him the map, if you remember the map. Yeah. Well, Crompier was at a barber shop in New York City when two henchmen come in, shoot him, and take the map from him. He survives this attack, but has never found the map since. He, he himself, till, till his death, never found the map. It's since resurfaced. It has resurfaced. I saw yes. Yeah. Um, but as we were doing Discovery, I was researching this people of course believe that it's still out there yeah except this one guy in particular there's a treasure hunting forum where he put that in 2003 he was fairly certain he pinpointed where the treasure was went to it found a not a stump but a tree with 1934 carved into it and a big hole and he's like i think someone came and got this treasure and everyone was like I don't think anyone did, because that's not what happened. Like, it was an X marked into a stump. It wasn't the year marked into a tree. And also, uh, the most important thing are receipts. The bonds have never been cashed. Yeah, the bonds have never yeah. been cashed. We would know. So would I think... bank records of that. No, I don't think anyone has found it. And, like, the jewels he would have had would have been very easy to make untraceable. Yes. You yank a diamond out of a ring, it no longer has a signature, you know? So I think it would have been pretty easy to put untraceable things in there. So maybe the jewels, you know, could have been spent. Maybe the bonds, maybe somebody came, found it, popped it out, and went, well, fuck, I can't do anything with these bonds. Got rid of those, and then... It would be funny to think... Sometimes I wonder, you know, when we talked about Forrest Fenn way back in our, you know, second or third or episode or whatever, before the treasure had been found, uh, I... 
sort of hypothesized how funny it would be if you were just walking in the woods and came across it and we're like oh what the fuck is this yeah is this a, did i just find fucking treasure <laughs> yeah uh and i this kind of feels like it could have happened with this because everybody knows what an x means yeah it marks the spot so uh, I hope it's still up there. I think we should plan a trip up to the Catskills and go see if we can find it. I want to try to find the treasure. Because I think it, if it is there or ever was there, it's still there. That's fair. Yeah. Because, I mean, if it, that's, I'll agree with that. I think it's $50 million. Yeah. If it's $50 million worth of stuff and someone found it, one, they couldn't. We see how many times people win a million dollars with the lottery and can't shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. So if you found a box of 50 to 150 million dollars worth of stuff, that's a news article right there. Yeah. That's multiple news articles. I just, yeah, I don't even know how you could broker most of that. You'd have to do it so slowly. Like if yeah. it was a, say it was a ton of diamonds. And even then you need to have like, it's so easy to fictionalize these things and mm -hmm. think of it like in terms of Grand Theft Auto, where yeah. it's like, oh, well, I go get item and then sell. Where the fuck are you going to sell all those diamonds? Yeah. You know, are you going to throw them on eBay? Are you going to take them to a local jeweler? Are you going to have to find a jeweler who's looking the other way? At some point, that person's going to talk. They're going to say that we came across this big cache of diamonds once. I just think that if that treasure exists, it's probably still there. I think you're right. What would be the legality of those diamonds, though? Well, finders keepers, realistically. Um, yeah, unless sure. they were unless they were buried on. Uh, so they have to be, if they're buried, it really depends on what kind of land they're buried on. So one of the issues that Fen ran into was, uh, or the Fen hunters have run into, was that digging on national parkland, like on public lands, is illegal. Yeah. Uh, and anything that's left there is volunteered to the government, to the owning property. So it would be distributed in theory to all of us. Um, but the legality of it just being in somebody's yard would be that in reality it would i guess belong to the person in the yard it has to do with the forfeiture laws you know how <clears throat> sometimes when you see a car on the side of the road and it has a sticker on it like an yeah. orange or yellow sticker that's usually an abandoned sticker and what you can do in many states is you can then petition to take that vehicle interesting yeah i've gotten a car that way before nice yeah, yeah. it's you see it and you just take it you fix it because sometimes you know like somebody can't fix their car it's not a huge issue maybe the alternator's fucked or something simple or maybe it's a little bigger but you have the tools to fix it well if they leave the car and you petition to get it what they do is then they send uh, a letter to the owner to say hey somebody wants your abandoned vehicle thoughts and if they don't respond or if they respond positively like they give them like two weeks yeah yeah and at that point you're allowed to come take the vehicle so i would imagine that the legality would be something like that yeah where do you want to start that's a great question because what was the last thing I said? Just the treasure? We're just talking about the Yeah, treasure. we're just talking about the treasure. Well, you lead in, though, because I... So, I 100% think we should try and find this treasure. Okay, well, shit, we'll do it then. Because uh, we were talking earlier, $50 million, even if, say, we can't do the bonds, which I don't know legality on bonds either, because um, they're a lot of times gifts. Well, if they're bearer bonds, the bearer in bearer bonds means the possession is 10 tenths of the law. They are. They belong to the bearer. There's no. It's, it's whoever a, has a bearer it. bond is a piece of cash, except it's bond. Okay. Yeah. It's like a check. And it's like a check that you can continue to share. Do bonds? I know. So, uh, I was given a bunch of bonds when I was born, mm -hmm. and I have used a couple of them, but I still have quite a few. And I know it takes like if it's a ten-year bond, it's a fifty-dollar ten-year bond. It takes ten years to reach fifty dollars. Does it continue to grow? Depends. Depends okay. on the bond. Yeah, gotcha. and it depends on the return on the bond. And uh, it, 
It, yeah, it depends on what kind of bond it is, who it supports, like if it's a government bond, if it's a non-government bond. Yeah, this is this is a question for Wall Street bets. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, because uh, they're reaching ninety years old. Oh, interesting. Let's see how long we can let them go. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the bonds, if they're bearer bonds, it would be no problem. We'd be able to take them out and be like, because they'd have to prove that they were stolen in the first place. I yeah. think what would honestly probably happen is if we go if we go up to the Catskills and we find this box and we yank it out of the ground, we got to tell nobody because if we tell people that we yanked it out of the ground, there's going to be a lawsuit about everything that's in it. What would be a lot easier is just to find the treasure, sell everything we can that's in it, and then claim we found whatever we couldn't sell in the box and yeah. be like, "Yeah, it's all that was in there. It's weird. It's like a bunch of bonds and a couple of gold things like shit we couldn't sell take all the stuff we could sell and just never claim it was in the box so you don't yeah. have to fucking say it was in there that's a that's like a needless thing to yeah. have to say to the government like hey listen i know you're gonna take it away from me but honor system i found a bunch of diamonds oh i gotta give them all to you now oh okay i probably shouldn't have told you huh? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah you just don't tell them you find it you dig it up you sell all the diamonds and everything that you can and then you tell them that what's in it's what you found and then that goes in a museum and you're a hero yeah, and you get like eighty million dollars out of it. It's true. Yeah, because I mean, even if you can't sell those bonds, big deal. Yeah, there's there's still plenty of money in there. So yeah, uh, we'll go find it. We'll go up to the Catskills. We now that we're so, we're vaccinated, and now that the world's open a little bit, we'll uh, add the coordinates to the mothership's computer, and we'll get over there. That's uh that's another discovery trip on our docket. First, we got to find Sugar's skull. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the Irish. Well, that's bog. gonna that's gonna take a little longer. Yeah, Shergar's skull is gonna be harder because Ireland is still kind of like a no go. But the UK is slowly opening back up, so I'm sure Ireland will soon too. Uh, but now we have. Um, this box of money because we yep. can't find forced fence treasure because it was already found yeah i know i know and plus you know everybody that went looking for it it seems like didn't know where it was anyway yeah forced fence thing really felt like an inside job and i know that that's probably an unfair thing to say feel free to leave a comment if you think that's a shitty thing to say but you know the guy I, there's just if it's real i understand why the guy's being so quiet but he has to understand that it feels like a hoax yeah yeah okay well thank you so much y'all for joining yeah. us uh we of course as mentioned in the intro we have our hotline so please send us a, a note to that if you'd like and uh i don't know enjoy yourselves i hope you enjoyed the show we had a lot of fun today uh, this was a really fun one to talk about this is one of the weirder treasures uh, I love a mafioso treasure you know it makes me think of New Vegas yes yeah, definitely it was yeah. rigged from the start yeah it was rigged from the start well thank you guys so much and uh, we'll see you next week uh, to end up the show oh shit I'm so sorry I do this every week it's gonna become like this <laughs> oh yeah also Caleb's got his thing no it's fucking riddle time <laughs> guys it's riddle time the Last week's riddle was, uh, there's one of me, but anytime I interact with something else, I make two of them. The answer was a mirror. Yes. There's a mirror. You walk up to it. There's two of you now. Yep. Um, this one, this week's... My cat does not understand that. <laughs> three lives I have. Gentle enough to soothe the skin, light enough to caress the sky, and hard enough to crack rocks. What am Ooh. I? Let us know in the comments, y'all. And also, if you have anything to say about the story, if you think you know where the treasure is, leave us a comment, share this with your friends. Uh, by all means, let us know what you, what you think, and check out the other shows while you're at it. Yeah. Enjoy. Thanks, guys.
<laughs> I'd buy a Black Lotus just for the hell of it. I'd put it into play. Someone is like, oh, is that a reprint? And I'm like, no, it's an original. I'd eat it. 